This is WGN Radio, John Williams here, as well as Cook County State's Attorney Candidate, Eileen O'Neill Burke. Eileen, you're on WGN Radio. Thanks for joining us. How are you today? Thank you, John. I'm happy to be here, and I appreciate you having me on. It's interesting to sort of read your background. Just tell us a little bit about your legal and uh, criminal, both prosecution and defense backgrounds. Sure. I have been a state's attorney. I was a criminal defense attorney after that. I was a trial court judge, and for the last seven years, I sat on the appellate court. I stepped down in July from the appellate court in order to run for this office. So you were a prosecutor and then later a criminal defense attorney. Is that unusual? Do attorneys sometimes switch sides, if you will? Um, I I wouldn't say it's uh, common. Uh, It's unusual for someone to be running for this office that has been on both and been on both levels of the trial system as well. That's unusual. What sort of perspective does that give you? Well, I'll tell you, John, I have sat at every side of the criminal justice system table. I know what effective prosecution is and what it is not. What we are doing right now is not working. And that's why I stepped down, because we can fix this. What are we doing now that's not working? Well, I don't think anybody needs me to tell them that. Anybody who reads the newspaper or watches the news could probably tell you the justice system is not working. You could ask any victim, any witness, even any defendant if they think our system is working fine right now, and I think they'll tell you it is not. Uh, You know, the state's attorney's office is woefully understaffed right now. What that means is women have a hard time getting an order of protection in domestic violence court. Defendants are sitting in custody for years waiting to go to trial because there's no state's attorney available to try the case. It's no one is getting a fair shake right now. And that's why I'm running. Is that that sounds like a um, management problem as opposed to a legal problem. Um, Is that something that the new state's attorney can fix? Why do we have a a deficit of attorneys here? So when I became a state's attorney and I'm dating myself now in 1991, there were twenty three hundred applications for 50 spots. It was a highly coveted job. It was the place you wanted to go to become a trial attorney. And today, there are hundreds of vacancies. So the training isn't there. The supervision isn't there. But I have already started recruiting other retired judges saying, come back with me. Let's form an education unit. My goal is to create the best training for any prosecutors in the country. I want to set the gold standard for training. So at each and every level of the state's attorney's office, we're going to have a curriculum where we study the Constitution, the case law, the statutes, and the courtroom skills that are necessary for people to be effective at their jobs. And then we're going to go out and sell the state's attorney's office as this is going to be like getting a master's degree in trial work. This is going to be the place to go if you want to be a trial attorney. So I can tell you that nobody has ever gone to the state's attorney's office in order to make money. What you went there for was the training, and we are going to offer the best training that there is, bar none. You suggested that anybody would tell you that the system is broken here in Chicago, that the law is either not being prosecuted properly or the the bad guys just aren't getting caught. But I think one of the biggest frustrations with people is that $1,000 threshold, that if I understand correctly, Kim Fox's office does not prosecute for property crimes under $1,000. Is that true? It's not property crimes. It's retail theft. 
So the retail theft statute says that the value of the goods should be $300 or above. What um, the current administration has done has said that we will not prosecute retail theft if the value is less than $1,000. So you can clear out a couple aisles in Walgreens before you get to $1,000. We're seeing the ramifications of this policy all over the county. CVS, Walgreens, Target, Walmart, they're all closing, and they're all closing because of theft. So what that means is that sometimes in the areas that they're most needed, Mm -hmm. they cannot do business there because of the theft. So I took an oath as a judge, and I will take the same oath as state's attorney that I will uphold the law. If there is an appetite to change that statute to be a $1,000 threshold, then the appropriate avenue to do that is to go to Springfield and change the law. It is not appropriate to say, I'm just not going to enforce the law. So, but that doesn't mean that every single person charged with retail theft should go to jail. What that means is that the prosecutor has a wide variety of um, penalties that are available to them. So if somebody doesn't have a background in retail theft, they go to theft school, they don't get arrested again, it's gone. It's off the record. It does, it's not something that impacts them forever. And then it, you can gradate up to supervision, probation, and eventually jail time if their background and their um, continuing retail theft plans. But, you would, but you, know? you, would empower, you would empower the attorneys in your office to at least prosecute cases starting at $300 if they felt Absolutely. that was warranted, as opposed to $1,000. Those numbers still are, are, are um, I think, interesting to our listeners in that— Say you steal something for $250, I still think there should be consequences for that. Well, absolutely. That would be a misdemeanor amount. But you can also aggregate the amounts. Let's say three people go into a store and they're working together. One is distracting the clerk or whatever. You can aggregate the amounts that they take. You can also aggregate the amounts if the same person comes back to the same store oh, interesting. multiple times. I think, though, so, the frustration that a lot of people have with Kim Fox is that her longer view, this is my assessment of it, she takes the rather long view that does it do us any good? So a kid goes in with a bunch of other kids and they steal some Nikes and they run out. If we put that kid in jail for a year... Is that really going to make us in the long run safer? And Kim Fox would argue probably not. What do you say about that? That it, it, the severity of the punishment is not what deters crime. It's the certainty of a consequence that deters crime. Just not prosecuting crime doesn't deter it. It promotes it. So we can do a variety of things, especially with juveniles. That's a whole different issue. But we have a variety of things that are available to us that that we can pursue as prosecutors. So just saying we're just not going to prosecute at all, it encourages people to engage in this behavior all over the place. So. I get that. It's 1118. Uh, we're visiting with uh, Eileen O'Neill Burke, who sat down from the bench in order to run for Cook County State's Attorney's Office. She's uh, to be the Cook County State's Attorney. She's worked both as a prosecutor and as a criminal defense lawyer as well. We are meeting the various candidates for Cook County State's Attorney. Kim Fox is not going to run again. Uh, The second interview we've done in this um, uh, series is with Cook County State's Attorney candidate Eileen O'Neill Burke, who has worked as a prosecutor in the state's attorney's office, uh, as a criminal defense lawyer, and as a judge. Who was the state's attorney then when you were a prosecutor? 
I started under Jack O'Malley, and I worked under Dick Devine. How did that go? What was your assessment of how well those offices were run? You know, they, they were very well run. There was excellent training. There was, um, you know, there was there was uh, a camaraderie that doesn't exist now. The morale was was excellent. We were proud to be state's attorneys. Story I was in, very proud to be a state's attorney. A story in the Tribune said Fox's policies in her two terms included unwinding wrongful convictions emphasizing mitigation and rehabilitation rather than high conviction rates alone, a shift from prosecuting lower-level and nonviolent crimes, and staunch support of the statewide elimination of cash bail. What's your thought about those planks of hers? So uh, let's start with the elimination. So the Safety Act is a seminal once-in-a-generation change to our criminal justice system, which fundamentally changes how we approach pretrial detention, whether we lock somebody up before they go to trial or not. So what it does is we've all seen when uh, someone was charged with a serious offense like a murder, a judge would set a very high bond to make sure that the defendant stayed in custody. So like a murder, million-dollar bond. Um, and whatever the bond was, was commiserate with the seriousness of the offense or um, the background of the offender. Sure. So now the criterion is, are you a danger to the public or are you not? I think we can all agree that that should be what the criterion is. Are you a danger or are you not? And and this, you know, there are all the legal issues regarding this have been resolved. So now the question goes to implementation. A fundamental change from the Safety Act is the state's attorney's role in determining who is held pretrial. The state's attorney now has to file a petition to detain before judges can ever consider whether they will detain or not detain. So in effect, the state's attorney has now become the gatekeeper. If the state's attorney does not file that petition to detain, it doesn't matter if the offender is a serial killer or El Chapo, it does not matter. The judge has to release the offender. So it has become exponentially more important that the state's attorney knows what they're doing and that they put structure, training, criteria in place. So I was head of the Illinois Judges Association for the last year. Judges were very aware this change was coming. Sure. And judges were very concerned about it. Judges don't like it when you mess with their discretion. But we were preparing and getting ready for this for a year that we need to make sure that we have a set criteria and training for each and every person who's going into Understood. But court. to be clear, Eileen, you do support the no-cash bail provision of the Safety Act, right? I do. As long as we are implementing it correctly, I do. I don't know how much time we need to spend on this, but let's just talk briefly about at least something that your opponents are talking about, and that is a murder in the early 1990s of Anna Gilvis. A young boy aged 11 was charged with her killing and was found guilty. You prosecuted that case. Later, it was determined that there was no physical evidence linking him to the crime, and details of his admission did not match up with evidence at the scene. I'm reading from a Tribune story about this now. The conviction affirmed by a juvenile judge and a higher appellate court was later thrown out by a federal judge. 
That boy, who never had any action with the police and did not seem to be a problem, cycled through the justice system and ultimately found himself into trouble. He was ultimately shot and killed in 2018. The murder of that woman has, in fact, never been resolved. And I wonder if you regret your role in the prosecution of that 11-year-old boy. Well, let's let's go back a little bit and flesh out your your fact um, recitation. So 30 years ago, I prosecuted a juvenile who had confessed confessed to the murder of his elderly next-door neighbor. Um, His attorney made the decision to put him on the stand where he repeated the confession. The case went uh, up on appeal after he was found guilty. It was reviewed by appellate court and federal court. My conduct in that case has never been questioned in that case or in any other case that I prosecuted or that I defended. The federal court found years later, it was eight years later, that his attorney, the juvenile's attorney, was ineffective and he was wrong for how he proceeded on that case. My conduct and my role in that case has never been questioned until 30 years later, until my opponent and his allies have brought it up. This is nothing more than a political tactic to distract voters from the fact that my opponent has no qualifications for this job and he has not been in a courtroom in 20 years. I can't accept all of that, but let's take the politics out of it for a moment, if we will, and just talk about that. An 11-year-old on the stand, it didn't occur to you that maybe the child was just doing what he thought was in his best interest or that that confession was coerced? And what would the obligation be of a prosecutor if that were the case? If I had any indication that that uh, confession was coerced, I would not have proceeded on the case. But the juvenile never asserted any coercion. His attorney never asserted any coercion. He was 11 years old. Okay. But then knowing what we know now, your opponents are saying things like she's never apologized for it or expressed remorse. Do you want to address that? Uh, I proceeded the way prosecutors need to proceed. We represent the victims in cases. And we go on what evidence we have available. Did I think it was the greatest case ever with a mountain of evidence? No. But you need to put it in front of the trier of fact, and they make the determination of whether the state has met their burden. I did my job on that case. And, and whether many, many years later a federal court found his attorney was defective, that doesn't impact my job and what my role was in that court case. We're visiting with Cook County State's Attorney Candidate Eileen O'Neill Burke, who comes from a family of police officers, as I understand it. Is that right? I do. Um, my dad, my grandfather, and my great-grandfather were all Chicago police officers. My dad had left the police department when I was very young, and he went to work for the Hotel Restaurant and Bartenders Union. And I will tell you that I am a true blue um, member of, not a member, but a, um, a union child because 
My dad died when I was very young, and I was able to go to college on his union life insurance benefits. So I am literally proof positive that union membership matters, and sometimes it matters more to your children than the members themselves. How appropriate that we hear a police car in the background as this interview <laughs> ends. Is that you? Did you do that on purpose? Was that you being clever? I did not. I, mean? <laughs> I did not. <laughs> um, 815 just texted in to say, I like what I'm hearing from our potential new state's attorney. I appreciate your time. Thank you for joining us today, Eileen. Thank you, John. Eileen Have a good day. O'Neill Burke.